0: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The radical fundamental principles of freedom, rational self-interest, and individual rights. This is the Yaron Brook Show. All right, welcome everybody on this Thursday night to the Ron Brook Show. Thanks for joining us. Today, I, I, I want to start off with the discussion of uh, student debt. There's a lot of talk about student debt these days, and we've got a question here. I've got a list of questions, primarily uh, that arrive by email from supporters, uh, Stuff, uh, some questions that are still going to the old Leonard Picoff. A mailbox that I'm going to answer a few of those, the ones that are relevant to me, and just miscellaneous stuff. And then there's a whole other set of content uh, questions that people did through Twitter, but I'll probably leave those uh, for future shows. Of course, you can also use the super chat feature to uh, to ask questions as well. And for that, for some reason this month. Uh, on the kind of a supporters page or supporters feature uh, very few people proposed questions and there was, there was really no voting there was just one question proposed so I encourage you um, uh, those of you who support the show I think at above $25 a, a month you can uh, propose questions and then everybody gets to vote on them so please participate in that if you have questions or topics you would like me to cover and it doesn't have to be narrow questions it could be big topics it could be something that kind of to cover for a whole show so you know I'm doing a lot of these so I'm eager to um, to hear from you in terms of what you want me to be talking about because I've talked about pretty much everything and and I need to start repeating myself that's the other thing I realized is that people they're new people constantly listening to show and I keep saying I talked about that but you can't expect people to go back and listen to your old shows so uh, you know, I probably there's probably going to be some repetition as we move forward here. And and that's, you know, all the talk show hosts and everybody does. They repeat themselves over and over again. So we're going to have to uh, do some repetition. All right. The first question, uh, the first issue is the student debt. It's a question that comes from uh, from Dan. It, it's funny because Dan, uh, I don't know if he's listening right now, but Dan is uh, was a friend of mine, I don't know, 30 years ago. And I haven't seen or spoken to him since 1993. So... Uh, Thank you, Dan, for supporting the show. Thank you for being back in my life in some way. Uh, we should catch up sometime. Um, that would be nice. All right, he's asking, what economic impact will occur if the increasing call for a debt jubilee uh, is actually implemented? And here, I think the focus that is really on student loans, uh, but we can talk about broader and cover consumer debt, although I think it's different if you include consumer debt, but there is a call. And then he wants any comments on the biblical and historical context of this uh, of this kind of issue uh, of debt jubilee. Uh, so I, I'm not an expert, certainly not an expert on the on the biblical historical aspects of this, but I'll talk a little bit about we can talk a little bit about that. But let's let's first narrow it down to talk about student debt because I think student debt is fascinating and really interesting in terms of the way it has evolved and the way. The Government has gotten more and more involved in it, and you can see kind of the inevitable consequences of what happens when you start with a program that looks looks like it's um, it's reasonable, it doesn't cost the government too much money. And then it evolves into this monster, and student debt is an example of that. so i 've got a few stats for you. So this is, this is where we are today, or, or at least 2016. It's much worse today um, because the Trump administration has done nothing about this. In 2016, as of July in 2016, so exactly two years ago, <clears throat> the government owned approximately $1 trillion of consumer debt, almost all of that being student loans. I think the number now is something like $1.3 or $1.4 trillion dollars of student loans. Indeed, th- a third... Of all U.S. government assets, you know, you got a balance sheet, you got liabilities, Social Security, all of that, Medicare, all of those liabilities, and then you've got on uh, the other side, you've got assets. A third of all the assets that the federal government, the U.S. federal government holds, it holds in the form of student loans, student loans that are being paid to it. Now, again, as of 2016, the government was losing Somewhere between 100 to 250 billion dollars a year on that, right? And that's that's a fair that's kind of our present value, and that includes about 40 billion dollars of just administrative costs, costs of administrating the program, right? 20 250 billion dollars a year seems like a lot because one trillion 250 billion a year. Is, would be 25% of one trillion. That's not possible. So, the story I'm reading from here is has got that number right, wrong. Maybe it's 100 million a year, uh, 100 to 250 million a year, but it can't be the 25% a year of losses. Um, that would be that would be even nuttier than I think the reality is, and it's nutty enough uh, in in reality. Now, how did we get into situation? Now, also, let's be clear. Almost 100% of all student loans issued today, almost 100% of them, are uh, issued directly by the government. Directly by the government. Now, there's still about $300 billion or more, 300 to $500 billion of student debt in, on the books of private institutions. But that is all debt that is being carried forward, has been carried since before. The United States government basically took on all of the debt. So, um, you know, between really from 2010, uh, over 90% of all student debt originates with the government. Uh, So all the debt that's privately owned is almost all debt that originated before the government got involved, right? Before the government got involved in this way. So the government holds this massive amount of debt. Uh, private institutions have several, you know, still several hundred billions of debt. Most of that debt is held uh, in all kinds of, uh, like mortgages, in all kinds of packages and all kinds of securities that are subs- that are kind of derivative from the the, the debt itself. That's how the, the, the originators of the debt have basically sold it off in different ways. And, you know, a lot of the entities that have done that are... Companies that, uh, how does this article put it? This is how the article puts it. Um, it says lots of student loans are owned by pseudo-government agencies. <laughs> pseudo-government agencies. This is, These agencies, like in the mortgage business, Freddie and Fannie. Uh, so there are two in particular that are mentioned here. One is Nelnet, which I've never heard of, so I've never heard of Nelnet. Uh, but... Uh, pseudo-government agencies or private companies with beneficial relationships with the Department of Education. I mean, whoa. So, pseudo-government agencies and private companies with beneficial relationships with the Department of Education, and, those, and Nelnet is one of those. Nelnet is traded on the New York Stock Exchange, so it is nominally private in the sense that they are stockholders, but it has quote, a beneficial relationship with the Department of Education, which means that the Department of Education basically backs all its debt, that all the debt is guaranteed by the government, which is true also of the private debt. We'll get to that in a minute. The other, the other agency with a beneficial relationship with the Department of Education is called Sally May, a direct parallel to Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. I'm not sure how they got these names. I, I, I should research how they got these names. And and Sally Mae is also traded on the New York Stock Exchange. So again, pseudo-private with a complete backing and, and of, of the government. And the reason Sally Mae was created, and I'm not sure when it was created. I think in the in the late 60s, uh, the reason Sally Mae was created was to securitize, just like the reason Freddie and Fannie Mae were created. Freddie and Fannie were created in order to securitize mortgages and sell them off. And thus create a more robust private mortgage f- for mortgages, and in a sense, subsidize those mortgages because all of the securitized mortgages were backed by the government. Here, as well, Sally May was created in order to securitize government guarantee and therefore reduce the cost of borrowing uh, on, student, on student debt. And that, you know, this existed from the 60s. Uh, really, since from 1965 until, well, the Department of Education didn't come into existence until the late 70s under Jimmy Carter, but uh, but this idea of securitizing uh, student debt and a government guarantee on student debt goes back to the Johnson administration in 1965. So, you know, so there's a lot of debt held by these, by all kinds of insurance companies and other financial institutions, but it's all guaranteed by the federal government, often through these entities like Sallie Mae. A lot of some of the other debt or, or the, the companies that issued um, uh, student debt, uh, Navient, Wells Fargo, Discovery, uh, Discover Card, uh, those are financial institutions, but o- almost all of them, in spite of the fact that they issued uh, a, you know, a long time ago. They have not actually uh, been issuing uh, much student debt, much student loans in the last uh, eight years, nine years. And indeed, there was, a, there was a thing in Congress where they had all these bankers lined up, you know, the usual, where, they, where the Congress whips the bankers into shape. Anyway, they put the bankers all in line, and one of the questions was, you evil bank," I mean, in a sense, right? You evil bankers, I want to know from each one of you how much student loans you have on your books and how much student loans? How do you exploit students? I want to know. And it was like, I think it was um, it was uh, Bank of America, it was uh, Chase, and I can't remember the third bank. And every CEO in the lineup basically said, uh, since 2010, when the government basically took over all student loan business, we have not issued a single student loan. Next CEO. Since 2010. and the go- And it was just... And the congressman was clearly taken aback because they thought, you know, they're so ignorant and so stupid that they thought that all the student debt was still being hold, held by private enterprise and private enterprise, of course, capitalism was exploiting these students. And it turns out, no, all this debt is being held by the U.S. government. So of the 1.3 trillion or 1.3 to 1.5 trillion, the U.S. government holds well over $1 trillion of that, somewhere between $1 to $1.2 trillion of that. Now, why? Why has the government done this? So, as I said originally, what would happen from the 1960s, government would basically provide a guarantee on the debt. And over the years, that guarantee grew and became more substantial until basically under Clinton and under Bush... Um, you know, the government basically guaranteed all student loans. So banks would issue the loans, but they were all guaranteed by the government. So the bank had no incentive to price it based on risk because there was no risk because the government was guaranteeing it. Uh, The the banks uh, had no incentive to price the loans based on the ability of the person to pay it back or based on the degree that the person was going to uh, uh, study in school uh, and based on projection on the earning power post-degree because the government guaranteed the do- debt no matter what. So there was this massive government guarantee. And indeed, um, starting with the Clinton administration and then accelerating under the Bush administration, the government started to actually issue directly, offer, de- uh, offer loans to students through a variety of different programs. And by the end of the, of the Bush administration, they, were, they had, when Clinton took office, the amount of student loans on the government's books was exactly zero, zero dollars. By the end of the Bush administration, it was $140 billion. So in comes Obama. And he looks at this and he says, this is kind of weird, right? The government is taking on all the risk of these loans. The banks are making a profit on them And yet, there's no risk involved. All the risk is the government's. The loans cost more because there's multiple paperwork that has to be done. The the bank is issuing the loan to the student, but then the bank gets the guarantee from the government. And there's all this bureaucracy. And, you know, the way a statist thinks, the way an Obama thinks, the way a Elizabeth Warren thinks, the way a lot of these people think, is... I mean, let's simplify this, right? There's a way to simplify this. Since the government is already guaranteeing all the debt, why shouldn't the government also make the profit over the debt? So why not just nationalize the whole program? And basically... With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As part of Obamacare, and I'm not sure how it's related to Obamacare, but at part of the same package as Obamacare was, and, and it was very little reporting at the time of this, the Obama administration basically nationalized the entire industry, not nationalized in the sense that it took over the banks. It took over the business line of issuing student loans. So, and again, think of this as a in a rational way, give, give them the most benefit of the doubt that you can. Basically, the idea is, if we're going to take on the risk, then we should get the reward. If we're going to, Guarantee these loans, why not try to make money off of these loans? Now, it turns out that they've lost a fortune on the loans, right? Again, the number I read here was $250 but it's probably not. uh, But it's a large number. They're losing money on it, clearly. Uh, But you can see why the temptation of somebody coming in who doesn't understand anything about government, about the private sector, about how the profit motive works, about how to run a business, who's never run a business, never employed anybody, never had to make bottom line, never, doesn't know what it means to make money. How they naively, and I'm giving him a lot of benefit of the doubt here, how, how they naively could think, well, we could see the upside without realizing that you're just creating a massive bureaucracy. That And not only are you going to distort the whole loan giving process even more than it's already distorted, you, you're going to lose money. You're going to lose money, which is what's happening with the government. So since then, all the student loans have been issued by the government and the standards have are basically been lowered to zero. So now the government is guaranteeing all the loans. They're giving, handing them out to everybody. They've got all these loan forgiveness programs that people qualify for, and therefore they're writing off left and right. And they've got this massive asset of, of over a trillion dollars, well over a trillion dollars, that they never can collect on, right? But and, and the private industry... Capitalism, if you will, is completely out of it. They have no involvement in it. Again, there's some legacy loans that they are managing and they're out of it. So that's where we are today. Now, in comes Elizabeth Warren, and she's not the only one. A lot of people advocating for this, a lot of people arguing for this, and I wouldn't be surprised ultimately if a Republican came up with a plan around this. And that is, let's get loan forgiveness. Let's, you know, this is ridiculous. What's going on today? is completely absolutely absurd, right absolutely absurd um, let's you know let's forgive all this debt, most of it or a lot of it, not most of it, a lot of it is going to default anyway. and look now let's be clear about the impact of this debt before we get to, before we get to to the proposals today let's think of the impact of this. one, students are taking on a lot of debt. And students can take on as much debt as they, as they want. Now, how much student debt does a student want? Well, enough to pay for college. Colleges can see that the students can get all the debt that they want to pay the tuition. And colleges are saying, well, I mean, they're not literally saying this, but this is what's happening. We can increase tuition. And we can keep tuition, increasing tuition. And there's no market mechanism to penalize us because... The government is issuing these loans. Students seem to have an irrational, unlimited appetite for these loans, maybe because they believe they won't have to pay them back, maybe because they believe ultimately they'll vote in Elizabeth Warren and she'll forgive them all the loans. And therefore, we can keep raising tuition. So universities keep raising tuition. Students keep raising the debt that they take. Universities see that the the students are willing to pay this new price, so they raise tuition even more, and then the universities raise, and then you know the the students take on more debt, and the universities raise it more, and they you know, and it just goes on and on and on. And and what happens to all this excess tuition? So it goes into things like really nice, sh- good chefs uh, making the food in the cafeteria. So some I I I, I read stories about this some. Uh, prestigious universities in the Northeast have these prestigious chefs cooking the food in the cafeteria. Now, the other prestigious university can't compete because, hey, they, if they don't raise tuition, they can't offer that food. And it go, it's going into fantastic dorms. It's going into beautiful buildings. It's not going into improving the education. No, it's going basically into dorms and then in into food, and then in into buildings. And administrators, lots of administrators, lots and lots and lots of administrators, something like 6x the number of administrators that were at universities 20 or 30 years ago. Now, you need those administrators because with all the regulations, or just to figure out, you know, how to deal with the 97 different genders that exist out there, you need at least 97 different administrators, Right? So you need a lot of bureaucrats to handle all the BS, right? So it goes to administrations, building, and perks. That's where the money's going. But at the end of the day, the money's going on the balance sheet of these kids. And the kids are graduating with huge amounts of debt. Many of them have studied subjects that are not exactly in high demand out there by corporate America. They're not going to make any money. They barely pay their debts back. This is one form of debt that you can't eliminate through bankruptcy. So there's no easy way for them to walk away from these debts. This is the government. So the government is demanding to be paid. Although there are some debt forgiveness programs, they don't seem to be, they don't, they're not hugely widespread. Um, and it's, it's crippling these young people's ability to advance, and one of the reasons we're seeing this attitude of this generation of of recent graduates will not have as high a standard of living as their parents is the fact that they are being crippled by massive student debt, and they're going to spend the first 15 years of their working lives just paying back that debt, And, and, and there's some argument, I don't know, I haven't seen the research, I've seen some research, but I don't know how definitive it is that as a consequence, they're delaying marriage, as a consequence, they delaying having kids, and, and they're saving less, although I'm not, I'm not huge on saving in your 20s. And this is creating massive, massive right, problems um, you know, among young people. And they're pissed off. And they're pissed off. And justifiably so, they should be pissed off. Now, then they're told... That all this is caused not by the government debt program, not by the scam, not by the kind of pyramid scheme that the government is doing. This is all caused by the marketplace. This is all caused by the fact that universities can charge whatever tuition they want. This is all caused by, I don't know, market-driven interest rates. And, And as the Fed raises interest rates, oh, my God, you know, this is caused by them. Not that the Fed raising interest rates is market at all, right? That's central planning as well somebody's asking, is it bad to wait for marriage again? No, I'm just saying, I don't know if it's bad or not. I'm just saying, if it's caused, if, if waiting is not caused by your actual values, but if waiting is caused by the burden of student debt, by the burden of something you should have never had to bear, certainly not at the extent that you're bearing it, you know, the size that you're bearing it, and if it's caused by the fact that you were provided by bad incentives. Now, you should be rational enough to overcome those incentives, but, you know, granted, m- many people are not. But bad incentives to go and get a stupid degree that adds nothing to your life, then yeah, then it's bad. That is, if it's an artificially causing you to delay a decision about having children and getting married, then it's bad, right? I, I don't know what the right age. I don't think there is a right age. I got married very young, and it worked out great. And by today's standards, I had kids when I was young, I had my first kid when I was 28. By today's standards, that's very late, early. By the standards when I got married, it was very late because I got married when I was 21. So I, I, I waited seven years. But I don't know what the right one for people are. They should be able to, they should be able to make that rational decision by themselves without external, in a sense, uh, a manipulation or incentives created by government, which is what's... Which is what's going on right now. Now, so you can see why the left is so appealing to young people. Not because they want, not just because they want free stuff, but because they are, they're in bad shape. They've been screwed, right? They've been screwed. They've been screwed by their parents, they've been screwed by their grandparents. They've been screwed by everybody who's voted for politicians who have inflicted, who have brought the situation of student loans and of student financing to the point where it is now. They didn't do it. They went around. It's not their fault. Now, as I said, they acted irrationally by taking on the debt, but that was kind of the reality they were presented with, and their parents probably advised them to do it. Partially because of the expectation that the government won't force them to pay it back. So here comes Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders or whoever, and says, we can wipe it up. We can get rid of it. Now, when you think about it, here is a trillion dollars sitting on the government's balance sheet. And if you just said to students, to young adults, not students, you don't have to pay your debt back then the government writes off a trillion dollar, you know, a trillion dollars of assets. And who cares? I mean, basically what it does is that the government then has to generate other sources of revenue from which to pay the debt that it took on to fund these student loans. Because remember, the government sold bonds. Now, the bonds were very cheap for whatever reason people, Chinese, Japanese, I mean, who we hate, right? Who, who Who we think are bad, who we think because the trade deficit is bad. Trade deficit is what facilitates all this debt, right? So the trade deficit makes it possible for these foreigners to buy all our debt. They've been willing to buy our debt at very low rates. And suddenly what we're saying is, well, we thought we'd be able to use the repayment of these loans by students to pay you back, but we're not going to. So we'll just have to in the future, take on more debt in order to pay you back. So the pyramid scheme just expands. The U.S. government has twenty-two trillion, or 2022, 20, I think it is, trillion dollars worth of debt. Um, all this will do is it make it a little bit more difficult to pay it back. And if the government doesn't issue more of this kind of debt, then, as Elizabeth Warren suggests, they make at least some colleges free, and let's assume they then get out of the business, then the real people who will suffer from this, you would think, are the debt holders that hold U.S. debt. The, the, the ability to repay that debt got a little bit worse. Not hugely worse, but a little bit worse. <laughs> and this is what the left is counting on. So let's say, let's say again, let's say again, that we just say you don't have to pay it back. You can keep it. What's going to happen? Nothing. I mean, nothing. I mean, a lot of things will happen, right? But at a first level, right? At a first level, as uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, um, uh, Economics in one lesson uh, taught us. That You don't just look at the first level effects, but the first level effects are the government debt stays the same. What will happen is the, the, the U.S. deficit every year will grow by the amount of what would have come in from the students paying it off and didn't come in from this them paying it off. Right? So if I would have paid my debt, that would have gone to close the deficit. So the deficit will grow by whatever the student debt payments are a year. Several, you know, let's say it's, let's say it's, you know, a, you know, several billion dollars. It's probably fifty billion dollars. So the year's deficit will grow at fifty billion. Nobody seems to care. Republicans don't care because they spend fifty billion dollars like that without caring about a revenue source. Democrats certainly don't care. They want to spend tens and tens and tens of billions of dollars. They don't care. Nobody cares. So I don't see how anybody's going to object to the proposal that we eliminate all student debt. Now, particularly when what Elizabeth Wands says is, look, I have a way to finance it. I have a way to finance this so we don't increase the deficit. And the way to finance it is a wealth tax of 2% on anybody who has more than $50 million. So if you have $50 million of assets, then we're going to tax you at 2%. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. He explained it. And notice how appealing this is. Now, I know it's not appealing to you. And I know it's not appealing to me. But put yourselves into the shoes of just a, just a everyday American. And, and no, or, or even an everyday billionaire. And notice how appealing this sounds and how appealing she makes it, right? This is, I'm quoting Elizabeth Wong, I think from a verbal, uh, like a speech or something. She says, I started several months ago uh, about a wealth tax, an ultra millionaire's tax. It's two cents on every dollar, two cents on every dollar of the great fortunes above 50 million. So your 50 millionth and first dollar I, she does, she's not taxing the first $50 million. Only the dollar above $50 million, you got to pay $0.02. Cents and $0.02 cents of all the dollars after that. $0.02. Cents, it's nothing. And here's the stunning part. If we ask the great fortunes in this country, understand that this, is, this isn't about trying to be nasty or say you're doing anything wrong. What it's about is saying, look, you had a great idea. You got out there. You worked hard or you inherited well, whichever one it was. And we say, good for you that you have not gotten this great fortune. Good for you that you have now gotten this great fortune. But two cents? You've got to pay something back so everybody else gets a chance. And here's how the money works out. And I don't know, by the way, I don't know if this is true, but this is what she's saying. If we put that two cents wealth tax in place on the 75,000 largest fortunes in the country. Two cents. We can do universal child care for every baby zero to five. Universal pre-K. Universal college. And knock back the student loan burden for 95% of our students. And still have nearly a trillion dollars left over. Now, I don't think the math is right there. But but anyway, think of how appealing that is. You take 75,000 Americans the tiniest of minorities. And they're super, super duper rich. And they're the lucky ones, according to Elizabeth Warren, because she's a big believer in you didn't build it. They're the lucky ones. And you don't tell them they're bad guys. You just say, you know, two cents. Two cents? How much is that? And we get to give all these free things? So Elizabeth Warren has a way to pay for the debt forgiveness. The, the student loan forgiveness. But let's think about the other consequences of this. Well, first, if you do this, nobody's ever going to issue student debt again, right? And if the government continues to issue student debt, then people buying American debt are going to wonder, because now... It's, it's, it's another trillion dollars, of, it's another whatever, billions of dollars of expenses, hundreds of billions of dollars of expenses that are never going to be paid back, and the deficit's going to balloon and mushroom. Now, so far, so far, the deficits have grown and grown and grown, and the debt has grown and grown and grown with little observable consequences. Interest rates are still very, very low. The economic argument against huge amounts of debt, one of the economic arguments, is, I mean, there there are many, but this is one, is that interest rates would increase, but they haven't. Global appetite for dollar-denominated debt seems to be infinite. They keep taking it on. Right? So, you know, it seems like this isn't a problem, but It has to end at some point. You can't continue this forever. It's got to go away. And then, of course, private issuance of of student loans is never going to come back because the government has now forgiven all this debt and nobody's going to take the risk that the government will do that again. Now, you could get again the situation where private private issuers issue the debt and then the government guarantees it. But then what? Then you get the same spiral of -of out-of-control costs, out-of-control debt. So the actual consequence of this, this is what the Democrats are counting on, the actual consequence of this are not obvious and don't seem to be that dramatic. Indeed, if this is the case, if the government can issue student debt and then wipe it all out and nothing happens, then why shouldn't the government take over all mortgage debt? Why shouldn't the government take on all of our debt? And then forgive it. We're all better off because we don't have this debt. The government has a lot more debt itself. It has massive deficits. But if there's no consequence to deficits, as Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tells us, as modern, monet- modern, yeah, MMT, modern monetary theory tells us, then so what? Now, the point is, at some point, there has to be a consequence to all the debt. At some point, people don't lend you money because they believe you can't pay it back. But I have no idea when that level is. And it could be that they could get away with this for a long time. Now, think about what that teaches students, what that teaches individuals, you can be irresponsible. You can take on huge amounts of debt. I mean, this is, the, this is what we taught the bankers in, in the financial crisis. But now we'll teach everybody. You can take on debt. You cannot think. And we'll just walk, you can just walk away from it. I mean, what kind of a life are these people going to live as we move into the future where they have this attitude that the government can just bail them out of everything? Now, what's the solution to the student debt? The solution is to privatize it. The solution should be to start by the government selling it to the private sector, selling this asset to the private sector and giving the private sector a haircut so that maybe giving students a break on the student loans because, hey, it's insane what's going on out there. So let's say the government rolled off 25% of all the student debt and then sold the remainder to the private sector and got out, completely out, of issuing debt to students and of guaranteeing the debt to students. By the way, the government is already in the business of of insuring much of our mortgages. Many of our mortgages are insured by the government. So it's not a far-fetched idea that given that they're insuring them, just like they were insuring student debts, they would one day say, well, who needs this middleman? Who needs these mortgage bankers? The government will just issue them directly. So, you know, at some point, you're going to have to pay for this. At some point, this system has to collapse, and the system will collapse. It's hard to predict when. It's hard to predict how. But there's no such thing as free lunches. And every sector in the economy, if this happened, in every sector of the economy, interest rates would increase and loans would be harder to get. Because everybody would be worried that the government is going to do a forgi- debt forgiveness. And everybody will suffer. The students will be better off, better off in the short run, worse off because they would have learned the wrong life lesson. I'm not against writing off like 25% of the student loans because I think of the, the, the government has created a real perversion here and then selling those on up. Now imagine a private enterprise without a government guarantee was actually issuing the loans. Imagine what would happen then. Then when you were interviewed, when you were filling out your loan request, they would ask you things like, what degree are you going to get? And if you were going to do feminist studies, your interest rate would be significantly higher, and the amount of money they'd be willing to give you significantly lower than if you were going to get an engineering degree. Not because they're anti-feminist studies, not because the bankers are nasty discriminators, although they'd be accused of discrimination and forced, therefore, to fund the feminist studies. And this is the problem. You know, this is why it's very difficult to unwind a fundamentally, systematically corrupt system, which is what we have today. Today, the system is so fundamentally corrupt. You, you, you have to get rid of so many laws. I mean, to really drain the swamp, to, to, to use a, a, a Trump term... You would have to do away with fair lending laws and all these laws that, that prevent bankers from actually assessing risk and giving debt based on risk and so many things. But imagine you lived in a world like that. Then, you know, banks would say, you know, I'm not gonna give you a loan to Harvard. You know what, Harvard is insanely expensive right now. And if I look at the rate of return on a degree of Harvard, it's too low. You're not going to make enough money after all the debt you take by going to Harvard. So you're not going to get a loan to Harvard. I'll give you a loan to university of whatever. And that would put downward pressure on tuition rates. Because Harvard would find it very difficult to attract students because the students would have to pay based on the risk. Other universities that were cheaper and offered a good quality degree would then be able to compete and get more students. And the competition would now be for lower because the market would be pricing the debt based on the actual value you're getting at the university. And if you were going for a crap degree, I'll give you an example of a crap degree. And not because of the content. Let me give you an example of a crap degree. Philosophy. I mean, I'm not against studying philosophy, but the fact is, the market reality is so many people go and get PhDs in philosophy. And yet there are very few jobs. So the supply of philosophers far exceeds the demand for philosophers. And the reason for that is because there's a lot of money to pay for philosophy students to get philosophy degrees at no cost to them. And the market breaks down. Now, it partially breaks down because it turns out philosophers are not very rational so they don't think long-term and they don't think whether they'll have a job or not. And it breaks down because people are willing to fund them even though the people funding them know they won't have a job. So again, uh, there is so much distortion and perversion in the educational system because of where the money comes from and the money comes primarily from government. So get government out of student loans, privatize the entire system, put the incentives back. Now, Dan asks a broader question. He asked a question about debt forgiveness. Now, in the Old Testament, now, you'll have to forgive me if I get this wrong and somebody can correct me in the chat, but in the Old Testament, if I remember right, every seven years, there was debt forgiveness. So every seven years, if you still had debt, you you didn't have to pay it off you 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 were forgiven the debt now you could have a system like that it's not a very efficient system because it limits the longevity of the debt that financial institutions would be willing to provide right uh, debt is, you know, so if I wanted to raise, uh, if I want to raise money for 30 years because I have a project that is a long-term project and um, I have to, uh, you know, I want to be able to get those returns over 30 years, so I want to be able to pay off the debt over 30 years. If all debt was forgiven after seven years, then I couldn't do that. So it would dramatically, so these jubilees, a seven-year jubilee, for example, would dramatically restrict the availability of credit in the economy, dramatically restrict the type of credit in the economy. And it wouldn't make it cheaper. So what would happen is that the responsible people, the people who typically pay off their debt, would have to pay dramatically higher interest rates because a certain percentage of the people would just default in their debt with no consequences after seven years. It's also true that the people who default on their debt after seven years would never then again be able to get debt after that. So the whole system is an awful, awful financial system. It doesn't make any sense. It can only make sense in a primitive biblical sense, and the Bible is primitive when it comes to its understanding of economics. It can only make sense in a biblical sense where usury is deemed evil in other words charging interest on loans is deemed evil that the whole functioning of a financial system is deemed immoral and evil necessary but immoral and therefore one has to cleanse oneself every seven years of that you know of, of this feature so no it, it, it makes no sense and but it has an appeal because this idea that debt is evil, that credit is bad, you see it among, even among libertarians, you see it everywhere, that bankers are evil, bankers are bad, credit is bad. By the way, I have a, a, a really good essay on this, about the history of usury. It's in my book, The Mall Case for Finance, which I highly recommend. You can get it on Amazon. Uh, the uh, the Mall Case for Finance, where I talk a lot about this. If you... The reason there's an appeal, there's there's a, an, an appealing nature to, to to this idea, is that we still distrust banking. We still think we're being exploited. We still don't take responsibility of the debt we take on. It's the bankers' fault. They seduced us. They're evil. They're bad guys, and Ron Paul is one of those guys who calls them banksters, and 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 it's. It's it's very, very prevalent within the libertarian movement, but it's prevalent throughout the left, the right, conservatives, because they read the Old Testament, many of them are anti-finance, anti-banking, anti-interest. L- the left, of course, hates it. So it, it's one area where everybody seems to agree. It's the uh, hatred of the banking system. Um, so, no, I, I think a jubilee would be disastrous, but very appealing, obviously, to people, because, hey, yeah, I wake up tomorrow and I have no debt. By the way, student loans are, are greater than all the credit card debt in the country. Greater than all the credit card debt in the country. It's just unbelievable. Just unbelievable. All right. I, 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 I hope you paid attention to how Elizabeth Warren framed the issue because I, I find the way she framed the issue uh, politically very important. And uh, you know I think it's going to be very appealing to people. Because I, I, she doesn't, she she framed the issue without being antagonistic to rich people. All right, one supposedly, of course, she's very antagonistic to rich people, and she thinks at the end of that they didn't create it. But this idea, of, no, no, you did a good job. You created the wealth. That, that's great, great, good. We just want two percent, two percent, get back a little bit. What's the big deal? Two percent. I mean, you're up, it won't make a difference to you. You're not going to spend all the money anyway. Um, one other aspect of this. There was a super chat question here. Um, which is, is it moral to take these loans knowing that they are being, ra- that are not being rationally counted not, and not provided by an honest wealth creator? Uh, Ayn Rand talks about this in an essay uh, about, uh, uh, you know, taking scholarships uh, from the government uh, in, uh, in, I think it's in Capitalism, the Known Ideal. And the answer is absolutely yes. Um, if you're a productive person, if you're going to, be a productive person, you're going to be paying huge amounts of money into the system. You should view this as, as some way, some little bit of restitution to all the money you're going to be paying into the system. And as long as you are fighting against this, then it's moral. What she says, it's a moral is for people who support the confiscation of wealth for the purpose of helping themselves. Are people who reject the confiscation of wealth but view this just as a restoration of their own stolen money, as that is legitimate. So, absolutely go ahead and take the scholarship if, if you need one. All right, um, Dan continues to ask Could the US dollar lose its status as a global reserve currency uh, and the US experience hyperinflation? I mean, certainly, if the U.S. experiences hyperinflation, then the U.S. dollar will lose its uh, its status as a global reserve currency. But I don't see just student debt causing hyperinflation. It's not clear where the hyperinflation comes from. If you just, um, you know, excuse student debts, particularly if you do other things like raise taxes at the same time, um, you know, and and, uh, and 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 use that money to to pay off the debt. So. I think there are other horrible economic consequences by taxing the wealthy who are the actual savers who invest that money. I mean, I'm not even talking about the morality of it, but just the economics of it. You're taking money away from people who save and you're giving it to people who consume. You're you're enhancing short-term economic, maybe growth by by sacrificing longer-term economic growth. Savings is what drives the economy, and the more we tax the rich, the wealthy, the the less savings we get. Um, So I don't see... This in and of itself, causing the dollar to collapse. The dollar will collapse once the debt burden becomes such that the people holding dollars and the people primarily buying out debt, don't believe in the U.S. economy anymore. They, they, they believe that it, 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 you know the U.S economy um, cannot sustain the levels of debt. And I mean, look, the. US. government can always pay back. the the debt because it has a printing machine. That the MMT, modern monetary theory, is absolutely right. Governments who have printing machines don't default. Um, It's at some point though, if you print money and the money is not going to production and you know the money is just going to consumption then you get inflation. And then once you get inflation, people lose confidence in the dollar. And if if you have to start printing huge amounts of money in order to um, pay off the debt, pay back the debt, because the debt has gotten so high, then the US economy is going to collapse. So there's going to be a collapse. There's going to be a... But it it could take a decade or two. Timing these things is impossible. And it's not going to be one action. Although some of what the Democrats are proposing will accelerate that dramatically. But look, I think I think a lot of the trade war that, that Donald Trump is engaging in today, a lot of the tariffs, has the potential to accelerate this because one of the reasons the dollar is a reserve currency of the world is because the United States has stood for relative free trade in the world and because uh, everybody wanted dollars because they wanted to invest in the U.S., wanted dollars because they wanted to trade in the, with the U.S. But if trade is in decline, if global trade is in decline, then the dollar will be in decline as well. The dollar is linked. Indeed, the U.S. economy will suffer just as much as the Chinese economy if global trade declines. If, 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 you, if uh, Trump is successful in, in bashing the Chinese and if, if uh, he keeps the tariffs and he increases tariffs over time, then what you will see is a collapse or a, a, a real destructive element within the U.S. economy. All right, uh, finally, would conversion back to the gold standard be an imminent beneficial action or is it better to be a later stage in the process of regaining capitalism? I, I think it's neither. You know, I think it's something that needs to be announced quickly and executed over time. So you could certainly do it pretty fast, but you would, you would need two to three years to execute on it there's a lot that needs to happen a lot because it's not just a gold standard what kind of gold standard are, are we talking about true free banking which is because i'm not supportive of a of a federal reserve driven gold standard I, you know we had that in the from 1913 and until 1933 you know and to some extent until 1971 and it wasn't good it wasn't a good system it's a bad system so uh, I would advocate for a free banking gold standard uh, and, and a free banking where you have competing currencies. That is where banks can decide what the standard would be. My guess is they choose gold, but but free banking means different banks and different customers can have different standards. And that's the only context in which I think you would see whether cyber cryptocurrencies work or don't work. And my expectation is they would not work. But so how do you move from the system we have today to a free banking system based on let's say, something like a gold standard, that's going to take at least three to four years. It's very complicated. It's very hard. And it would require a massive deregulation of the banking system. And then undoing the Fed and linking the U.S. dollar, at least for for the purposes of tax payment, to a certain weight of gold. And how do you do that? You would have to basically announce it and then see where the price of gold gravitates towards and fix it on a particular date that you set in advance. So there would have to be a whole series of steps, deregulating banking, deregulating money, getting rid of of legal tender laws, I mean, a huge amount of deregulation, and then shifting to gold standard, continuing the deregulation, and then having free banking. And it would probably take... It would take a whole term of a president to get it done, at least. And, and I do think it's one of the first things you would do because I think the, the, the fact that the government controls the money, the fact that the government can manipulate money, is without a doubt one of the most destructive parts of, uh, of central planning. Not only does it mean that, that they can inflate by providing too much too much money into the economy or too little money into the economy in some place some, uh, so what I would call bad deflation uh, you know so they could they could be providing they, they, they don't match the amount of money with the amount of real supply and demand for money that exists out there like a bank would they, they don't set interest rates based on supply and demand because they, they set interest rates based on their equations not based on any market signal uh, and then Thirdly, the way the money flows into the system creates massive malinvestment and bad investment and bad allocation of capital. So, in, in so many regards, the, and then of course, you have people like the MMT and you have all these, you know, Green New Deals, and, but you have the Republicans where the idea is you can spend forever without having any consequences. Government, one of the restrictions on the ability of government to spend is if you didn't have a Federal Reserve. If you didn't have a Federal Reserve, that would place a barrier on how much government could spend because it would then be dependent on real private markets to raise money, and it would would be restricted to taxes and debt, and the debt would be only private, and they wouldn't have a printing press. So private markets would actually price government bonds based on a real risk-return trade-off. And that would revolutionize the way, we did, the way we did business in this country and the way government ran in this country and the way everything. So it's probably the most important thing you could do as a first step. It, it's just complex, massively complex. So it would have to be phased in over the four years of your first administration. And it, it would be, you, would, you would have to fight everybody to get even a bit of it passed because it would be so hard, so hard to do. Hi. All right, um, that was just question one, and that's an hour, so I don't know what you do with that. Maybe maybe we just make this show just about that one topic, and I pick up on these other questions next show, because an hour just on student debt seems uh, seems kind of good, and, and generally government debt, um, you know, um, yeah, let's do that. Let's let's call it a night. I've done, I've done a whole bunch of shows recently, so it's not like you guys have a shortage of, uh, of stuff to watch. We've done a show almost every day in the last couple of weeks. Um, so, uh, next show is going to be on Saturday. I'll, I'll pick up probably some of these questions uh, from Saturday, and we'll do some Super Chat questions. I didn't get very much Super Chat questions. Got one uh, and, and a few dollars here and there. One way you can support the show is just use the Super Chat just to just to support the show. Just put some money in without a question. Some of you have done that. Thank you, Zar, and thank you, uh, you Nilufar. And I'm sorry I've, I've butchered your names. Um, you know, thanks for listening. Uh, don't forget to share this. I think there's a lot of valuable material here that people probably don't know about student debt and about the consequences of all this. Uh, and uh, we will pick up where we left off in a couple of days on, uh, on Saturday. Uh, if you have any questions, if you'd like to ask me questions, then save them, uh, for the super chat on Saturday. Uh, I'll be doing a show on Saturday and then probably on, um, maybe on Sunday, but if not certainly on, um, Wednesday next week, I'll be traveling. I'll be traveling, uh, this coming, uh, the first part of this coming week. All right. thanks you all. Share it. And then, of course, uh, support the on book show at your com slash support or at subscribestar.com or, you know, PayPal, subscribestar, my website. Those are the best places to support your own book show. Thank you all. Have a great night. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you again on Saturday. Bye, everybody.